0: Father, there is no greater truth that we can understand and embrace and celebrate today than the truth that you have washed us in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have separated our sins, you have trampled our sins under your feet, that you have cleansed us like David cried, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I want to thank you for the blood applied, for the debt paid. I want to thank you for grace that you have bestowed upon us. And for all of those here who know you this morning, I pray that you'll just remind us that we will indeed celebrate grace, that we will celebrate your forgiveness and your riches, that you chose us, that you saved us, that you redeemed us, that you have adopted us, that you have secured us, that you have placed your seal within us when you gave us your life, your life to us and the life of your Holy Spirit who indwells us. This morning we come just to celebrate and to be grateful, and we come to be taught and instructed and challenged, and so I pray, Father, that you'll just be glorified in our time together. In your name I pray, amen. Have you ever missed an assignment? Have you ever not understood an assignment? There seems to be a social media meme going around about he understand the assignment or she understood the assignment. And it, 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 the, uh, I looked it up because I want to make sure. It, it comes from a song. But it's, it, what it does is it, when somebody goes 110% or they do excellently or they just hit the nail on the head, the statement is he or she or they understood the assignment. Um, but too many times in my life I have misunderstood the assignment. And when I was thinking about this sermon, I thought, the problem is not that I have to search for an illustration, the problem is I have to narrow them down. Hey, I'll start with a very simple one. Seventh grade, my brother and I went to dad and said, We need money. And he said, Get a job. And I'm not kidding. If you know my dad, you know I'm not kidding. But he did us the favor of buying us a lawnmower and a tank of gas. And he said, walk down the street, push the lawnmower, and ask people if you can cut their grass. He said, go to people whose grass not cut." And so we began to do that. We spent a summer doing that. A guy came to the house, and he told my dad, I want your boys to come cut my grass. And he gave us the address, gave dad the address. So Mark and I walked down the street. We lived at 518 Clubview Drive. This is in the Andover neighborhood in Jackson, Mississippi, right there off of Flag Chapel Drive. Not that that means anything to you. But what it meant to us was there's about 280, 290 houses in the subdivision, and this house wasn't close. It was down at the end. And we went down there, and we looked at it, and we looked at each other, and we thought, great goodness. I don't know what we're making, but it's not enough. Have you guys ever tried to cut a well-overgrown yard with a push mower 20-inch? You go two feet and it bog down and you work it. We worked hours on that yard. And we came back and we, were, we felt like we had conquered it. Good job. And the guy came back the next day complaining because we had not cut his grass. We had gone to the wrong house. I think it's safe to say that we did not understand the assignment. Uh, when I was a senior at Furman praying for graduation, I don't know if anybody can relate to that beyond me, but I had a history course, and uh, I was give, we were given an assignment, and one of them was a book review. We had to review and report on a series of books, and uh, I, uh, I did. I turned it in. I turned in what I thought was the assignment. Uh, what I did not recognize was that the syllabus had been updated and the book list had changed. And I wrote a wonderful review on a book that no longer qualified for the course. That was pretty frustrating. Uh, even, even younger, when I was going driving down to Myrtle Beach with, for my boss when I was in high school, I was headed down I-26. There's a pretty good stretch from Columbia headed out toward Myrtle Beach you guys know the turnoff and how to get there but I was going down I-26 and I had my uh, my boss's grandson beside me I was 17 full of myself driving the truck for the first time my boss's truck I go down there we needed gas I pulled off the interstate got gas got back on the interstate and I'm driving down the road and all of a sudden I see a sign that says Columbia I got back on the road going the wrong way it was pretty frustrating. It added about an hour to the trip. What was more frustrating was that rascal knew it, and he didn't say anything. And I've done many more, and I've done many worse, far worse errors, because I didn't understand the assignment. I remember not long after I got here, we had to have a roof on our house replaced. and I was talking to Jerry Fowler, uh, who owns a roofing company, and he was telling me about One of their experiences back in the day, uh, B and F roofing. Back in the day, when they had come and pulled all the shingles off of a house, and it was the wrong house. (laughs) So, have you ever done something like that? I want to make. I know I'm not the only one who's done that sort of thing. Those experiences can be disturbing and they can be frustrating. Most of them aren't life-threatening, but what if what if we miss an assignment that matters? for someone's eternity you see as believers we have an assignment as those who have come to the foot of the cross of those who have experienced the grace that we just sang about and heard about of those whose sins have been forgiven we've given our life away we're no longer our own we've been bought with a price and we have been given not only life we've been given purpose we've been given a mission we've been given a calling this is no surprise, many of us have been raised in church, we've been in conferences, we've, we've read and heard, and we know at least some idea of what the Great Commission is. You know, recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus has gone to the cross and died to pay the penalty for our sin. He was buried, and on the morning of the third day, he was raised, and then for about 40 days, he continued to interact with the disciples, and he called them up to Galilee, all of them, come meet me in Galilee on the shores. And there, when he met them, Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all power, authority in heaven and earth, exousia, has been given to me. You, therefore, go, or as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. There's such truth in that passage, and it's such an important thing. The problem is, too many times we either miss the assignment, we disregard the assignment, or we misunderstand the assignment. And so, we're going to take just a few weeks to look at an excellent maker of disciples, the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at one encounter that he had in one town. On his first trip into the the continent, into Europe with the gospel, in a little town called, a big town, called Thessalonica. But I thought it would be good to start simply with the definition of a disciple. A disciple of Christ is one who is following Jesus, one who is being changed by Jesus, one who is committed to the mission of Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and following... While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who we call Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately, immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, they left their boat, and their father... And followed him. They became in the leaving and in the following disciples of Christ. And when we talk about committed or surrendered, it's not, it's, it's not uh, coercion to get people to do things I want them to do or we think they should do. It is a, a definition that Jesus gave in Luke when he's talking and he's preaching and he's got the Jews gathered there on the Temple Mount. One of the things that he says is: if anyone comes to me, He's got to, if he's going to really be my disciple, he's got to hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Harsh words. Why are you supposed to hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children? And, and the, the, the idea here is it's a comparison. You ought to love him so much that any, everything else is less. Everything else is like hatred. And even his own life, you've got to love him supremely. If you, cannot, if you do not, you cannot be my disciple. So it's, it's a high cost. It's a high calling. It radically changes your life. And I want you to understand that a disciple is a fully surrendered follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who spends his life learning, spends his life being continually transformed. It is one who walks with, one who walks after, a learner and a follower and so far we're doing okay you guys are on the journey right you with me there was a time when i did not follow christ christ invaded my life with truth and his holy spirit he convicted me of sin righteousness and judgment there came some understanding and knowledge and then enabled by the spirit of god he brought me to repentance and granted me repentance and i turned i changed i gave my life to him and i'm no longer my own i've been bought with a price and he brought me from darkness to light, what we just were singing about. He brought me from death to life, and I'm you. And isn't that a great place? Now, why don't we just go on to heaven? It's better there than here. There, there's no tears, no sorrow. There's no drama. Certainly no melodrama. There, there's no gossip, lying, backbiting. There, there's no stealing. You can leave your doors unlocked. There, there is joy and singing. And by the way, we don't even need the sun. By the way, the temperature is always right. Heaven's better. Why don't we just go? Some people were asking the apostle Peter, and Peter said, well, the Lord's coming back. By the way, when we get to Thessalonians, one of the key points of the book I love is that at the end of every chapter, Paul, writing to this church, reminds him the Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. But one of the discussions that Peter has is people say, well, the Lord's coming back and we're going to heaven. Why didn't he just go ahead and happen? And Peter gives the explanation. He says, because when he comes, he's coming back as judge. And he's going to destroy the world with fire, except for those that he rescues by grace through faith. And he's not willing. He doesn't want to come back before before time. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to come to him. In repentance and faith so we're here and we have a task and according to Matthew chapter 28 the task is to make disciples and a disciple is one who follows after Christ and somehow a lot of churches and a lot of believers miss the assignment we think that means I'm supposed to be more Christ-like and so it becomes all about me and Christ which is important we're going to get to that in a minute very essential but it's also about how Christ in me impacts others and those around me, there is a mission. You remember when we started to study the book of Acts, uh, Luke writing the book of Acts says, hey, this is the continuation of the story that we started then. The works that Christ began when he was in his body on the earth now continues as his Holy Spirit indwells believers. And you remember his commission uh, to the disciples there in Jerusalem, waiting on the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes and follows then you'll be witnesses of me into Jerusalem Judea Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we have a task, a very important task. It's just that we use the word disciple a lot and I don't know that we fully understand the assignment. So just looking at Paul, and again, I'm going to do a lot of summarizing here hopefully. But it's important to to look at the life of this man, how he was a persecutor of the church. You see this testimony throughout the epistles. How he was a persecutor of the church, that what he calls himself the chiefest of sinners because he persecuted the very church of God. How did he held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen, the apostle, the disciple who was stoned in Jerusalem? How did he got permission from the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders of the day to go punish and to terrorize Christians in Damascus? And on the way, the Lord Jesus Christ came to him. And you can read in Acts about his encounter and how uh, Christ revealed himself to him. But he not only saved him, he gave him a mission and a calling and a task. He was to be the missionary to the Gentiles. As you study the New Testament, you see that Paul came to Jerusalem to check in and say, hey, I'm transformed, I'm changed. Uh, He wasn't well received. You can probably guess why. He goes back to Tarsus and he spends three years in the wilderness and he's being equipped by the Holy Spirit and by his study and by transforming. And then once a new church is started in Antioch and Barnabas goes to Antioch, he needs help. And so he goes and finds Paul in Tarsus and he brings him back to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas help lead and train the leaders at the church in Antioch. And while they're there, the Holy Spirit impresses upon both the church and them that they're to be spreading this news. And so they go on a missionary journey. You guys are familiar with the story. They come back and then... What we find in Acts chapter seventeen is the second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas have a little bit of a disagreement after they leave Antioch, and Barnabas wants to take John Mark. John Mark's already stumbled and fallen once; he quit their first trip. And Paul's kind of like, "No, nope, we need to find not not him." And Barnabas is like, "No, let's give him a chance." And so they decide to go different ways, and Paul takes a man named Silas with him, and they go. Around the northern route to the places where they'd been on that first missionary journey, checking on those churches that had been established. And this is in kind of northwest Asia, headed toward Greece, to give you an idea of where it is geographically. Well, he wanted to go north into Bithynia, an area in the north region uh, of Asia. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. And one night, Paul has a vision that there's a man in Macedonia. You guys know Macedonia, Greece? He's coming into Europe. He's coming on the continent now. And there's a call there, uh, what's called the Macedonian call. And the Holy Spirit uses that vision to direct Paul and his team to go into Europe. He goes, and I can take you step by step. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, just go ahead and open. We're going to read about his encounter with the Christians at Thessalonica. But when he comes in, he goes to Philippi. Philippi is a fun experience for Paul and Silas and Timothy. That's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I know it was a fun experience because of the power of God. Lydia there was a seller of purple and she, uh, she came to faith in Christ. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and she was baptized in her household and she, they, they stayed with them. But again, there came opposition and Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. God got them out. There was a uh, a, a shaking and the doors opened And this is where you remember the story of the Philippian jailer who was going to kill himself. And Paul and Silas said, we haven't escaped, we're still here. And the Philippian jailer and his whole household came to faith in Christ. Paul and Silas were punished and they made kind of an agreement there in Philippi, but they had to leave. And so when they left, they came to Thessalonica. Starting in chapter 17 of Acts, verse 1. When they had passed through Ampipha Ampiph- whoa, and Am- Epipolis and Apollonia they came by the way just so you know for years I pastored deaf churches I could say it any way I wanted to (laughs) as long as I spelled it right in Apollonia and they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days. so we've got three weeks He is reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he's preaching in the synagogue three weeks, the gospel, exposing the truth of scripture, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many, this is a comparative phrase, a lot more of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason. Jason was a Jewish man living in Thessalonica who heard received a message and welcomed Paul and Silas and Timothy into his home seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest they let them go. And so the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. All right, how long was Paul in Thessalonica? You just read the account that we have in the book of Acts. We know he was there for three weeks. He preached in the synagogue for three weeks. But we know he was there longer than three weeks because he continued to preach after, shaking, after leaving the synagogue and a great many Gentiles Even the leading women of the city, which was a a, a role of influence and authority, a great many of them believe, most of the people that I have read and studied trying to get information about the historical flow of the book believe Paul was there probably three months, probably four months. Well, he leaves there, he goes to Berea. The Jews were more noble in Berea. When Paul taught them, they began to search the Scriptures to see if it were true. But those Thessalonians, those Jews that were mad there, they came down. And they caused an uproar, and Paul had to leave there. He continues in his journey to Europe, and he goes to Athens. You guys remember at the end of chapter 17, Acts uh, of Acts, Paul's interaction on the Acropolis. He sees all these idols, and there's one to an unknown God, and he, he begins to interact with them and to share the gospel with them. And some believe, but he's pretty disappointed. Meanwhile, he has, he has left Timothy. Meanwhile, he has left... And sent Silas away. He's by himself in Athens, and then he comes to Corinth. Corinth is a a beautiful city. It becomes a key church that he establishes there, but when he gets to Corinth, he's not a happy guy. He's physically tired, he's alone. He was beaten in Philippi and jailed. He was run out of Thessalonica, he was run out of Bria. He was dismissed as insignificant and unimportant. By the leaders in Athens. And he gets to Thessalonica and he's just tired. And he's concerned about the people that he's left. He knows that they're going to face opposition from the Jews. They oppose Paul. They're going to oppose those baby Christians. He knows you're going to face opposition from their family. He knows how hard it is to remain faithful to truth. When you are new in that truth and there are struggles and he's concerned for these people They weigh up on his heart so probably somewhere between six and nine months after later after leaving Thessalonica Paul arrives at Corinth and sometime in that period he sends this letter back to them Timothy has come and he's come to Corinth and he's brought a report Silas has come back and joined they brought a report of what is taking place in Thessalonica in the church that has been established and this is probably chronologically the earliest writing of paul this is probably the first letter he wrote wrote it on his second missionary journey and he understood the assignment he understood the task was making disciples we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at him and His engagement here this morning is an introduction. But I just want to bring to few, a few things to mind that we need to keep in mind. And the first is simply that making disciples starts with the gospel. A lot of times in churches, you have discipleship programs, and who are they for? Well, they're for the Christians. And when do they have them? On Sunday night and Wednesday night when only Christians would come, right? We tend to think of discipleship as something that is only a kind of a a second tier or more dedicated level of training or equipping. And yet, in Paul's experience and in Jesus' experience, and what God calls us to do is to remember that we make disciples of people who are not disciples and the process there is the process that paul used in the synagogue It's the process that paul used throughout it's a process that jesus used that we studied in the gospels before it's the process that we see throughout the book of acts and that is proclaiming to people the good news of the lord jesus christ sometimes we're good baptists we have you know Uh, programs that are designed to take you deeper into your walk, but I want you to know that that while that is discipleship, we're going to get there in a minute, while that is discipleship, there's a whole other component that we largely dismiss, and that is we need to be looking to make disciples from people who have not yet been in this building, never been on these grounds, never made a profession of faith, that walk up and down the streets or that walk up around your neighborhood at home, that you casually come in contact with, that come downtown to eat or that sit at the tables at Gather Greenville. People who you kind of come across and you don't know what their profession of faith is because we've never taken the step of having the most important conversation that we can possibly have. And that is to let them know that we're followers of Christ, that we're walking with Him, that He guides us, our life is no longer our own. And to see what their status is so that we can tell them the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with me? We, sep- we tend to separate evangelism and discipleship. The New Testament does not. Evangelism is a component. Matter of fact, it is the beginning. You make disciples of people who are not disciples. It's what Paul did when they got there. He was explaining and proving The story of Christ, that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead. And pointing people to Jesus, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, I do want to talk about how the New Testament uses the word disciple. Because in John chapter 6, in one of your take-home questions, I really want you to engage in John chapter 6 on that question in particular. Because Jesus in John chapter 6 has a great crowd of followers. And the word that is used there is disciples. All right. John 6, particularly verses 63 through 69, the, disi- the word disciple can refer to a casual listener, somebody who's willing to listen. They're willing to have the conversation, no profession of faith, but they're willing to engage. They'll have coffee with you, they'll talk about what they believe, they'll listen to what you believe. And in Jesus, there was this big crowd. They were not committed followers, but they were willing to listen. But then there's kind of a next level. There is a convinced listener, one who is starting to buy into the truth, one who is beginning to understand, one who is beginning to receive enlightenment by the Holy Spirit and they become convinced of, of the truth of the gospel or at least that it has truth, though it hasn't, though the Holy Spirit has not brought them to life yet. And then most often it's used as committed discipline. Can I just make a point here? A lot of times when we sit on the pews in a church, we'll just look around at each other and say, that guy's saved, and that guy's saved. I'm not too sure about that one. Pretty sure this one's not. I think that one used to be. I'm not not sure how it's holding up. You guys understand what I'm saying? Y'all ever have those thoughts? Y'all know people have those thoughts? We'll pretend another Baptist church does that, right? Can, Can I tell you something that I think is very important? Every person that is born has a birth date. You agree with that, right? Every person that's born has a birth date. As a matter of fact, they have a birth hour and they have a birth minute. But sometimes as we live in relationship with one another and as we convey truth to one another and as we walk with one another and as we model Christ to one another... There's this whole gestational period that the Holy Spirit is working to convict of sin. That the Holy Spirit is talking to their heart and is drawing them to Christ. And they may... How many many times have we had people come to church and say, I need to be baptized or I need to join the church. And we look and we say, well, we thought they were members already. Because they've been on this journey And you may be that person, you've been becoming religious and you've been trying to follow Christ as best as you can, but you've not gotten to the place where you have surrendered. You've not gotten to the place where the Holy Spirit has just turned the light on for you and changed you and you've become a new creature. In Luke chapter 14, the cost of discipleship is the cost of your very life and you've not come to a place where you have laid down your life for Christ as he laid down his life for you. That's the most dangerous place right there because you look pretty good. You take the classes and you know the words. There's a lot of biblical and religious knowledge and so as best as we can, we're trying to follow after Christ. But what happened in John chapter 6? Jesus is preaching and teaching and he comes to hard truth. As a matter of fact, he uses hyperbole in his teaching. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood into the Jews, that was not a joke. That was anathema. What are you talking about? And they understood the message. Please don't don't misunderstand the text. They understood the message, but they were completely put out. And what does the Bible say happened to those guys? They, they, They departed. They left. They went home. They didn't stay. And Jesus looked at his disciples, his apostles, his disciples, and he said, Are you going to? And I love Peter got it wrong a lot of times, but there are some times when he got it right. Lord, where else can we go? You alone hold the words of life. And so if you're back here, I'm glad you're there and not just complete in rebellion against God. But I want to tell you, it's a dangerous place to be. What we desire, what God is working in your life is to bring you to the point where when it gets hard, when you recognize I can't follow after Christ, not my works, not my goodness, not my strength, not my ability, that you will cast yourself totally and completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what happens. He brings you to the point of your need. He brings you to the conviction of his grace. And you respond to him in repentance and faith. And then it's all of a sudden... It's just amazing. It's astonishing. It's new life. It's not religious effort. It's new life. It's resting in what Christ has accomplished that leads to religious effort empowered by the Holy Spirit, not empowered by our flesh. And I don't want to get too far into that right now. We're going to spend time talking about that. But we need to recognize we talk to those who listen. It may take some time, it may not. Paul had a large group of converts, a young church established in just three weeks and in just three to six months but it is God who saves. The discipleship process often begins with sharing the gospel with someone and seeing God work in their life and begin to draw them. And when he changes them and saves them, they obviously have so much to learn about what it means to live for Christ that we need to recognize our job isn't just to have them pray a prayer, let them make a decision, present them to the church, baptize them and wish them well and go look for somebody else. We're to continue to invest our lives in this person. That's why Jesus said, we teach them to observe all that i have commanded to you we have a responsibility to nurture those that come to faith in christ as a result of our testimony just like paul did he was so concerned about them and i want to skip through the rest of this because we've got weeks we're going to go through this but i do want you to recognize the first thing that he says in in first thessalonians chapter seven not the first thing but an important after the greeting he says we give thanks to god always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Making disciples starts with the gospel, making disciples requires constant prayer. How many of you feel like you would compare favorably to the Apostle Paul? And that's what I get, well that was Paul. (laughs) Can I tell you what made the difference in Paul's life and our lives? His yieldedness to the Holy Spirit working in him and working through him. He had... Is our mission the same as Paul's? Have I put you to sleep already? Yes, Yes, I have. Thank you. (laughs) Nudge each other, wake each other up. (laughs) Have... uh, Is our mission the same as Paul's? Yes, our mission is the same as Paul's. We're to spread the gospel, which was the answer to the question. I got it, thank you. But we're to spread the gospel. We're to make disciples of all nations. And we do that in the power of God who calls us and equips us, and He's the one who brings the fruit. Paul looks at the astounding results in the lives of the Thessalonians that Timothy comes and shares with him. How did it happen? You go through the book and you say, I didn't come to you with flattery. I didn't come to you with any great skill. I came to you serving. I came to you dependent upon the Holy Spirit. What has happened has happened because God's been working in your life. Sure, I came and spoke the gospel, but the gospel came in power, not my power, God's power. And it brought repentance. And that's why he continued to labor for the Thessalonians for their well-being, for their good, for their strength in prayer. God's working in them. Let's ask him to do more. Discipleship starts happening as we start depending upon God to work his way in people's lives. Discipleship requires constant prayer. Let me, let me just kind of break this down really quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, look it up, write it down. Paul tells Timothy, that which you've learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who will in turn teach others also. Who do you think Paul's greatest disciples were on the second missionary journey when he went to Thessalonica? Thessaloniki, as it's known today. Who do you think his greatest disciples were? The the ones he invested the most time in. I'm confident that he spoke to the crowds in the Jewish synagogue. I'm confident that he gathered others at Jason's house and house to house throughout the city as he spent time there. But you know who he invested most of his time in? Silas, Silvanus, Silas, same guy. And this young convert named Timothy. And he was spending time living before him. By the way, go ahead and put the third point up there. You can go ahead and write it down. Making disciples is personal. Discipleship is never personal. Never takes place from a distance. Making discipleship, re, making discipleship, making disciples requires an investment of your time and energy and your very life into the life of other people. It requires face-to-face time. It requires interaction time. It requires them being able to see you. It is personal. What Paul says in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. With full conviction, you know the kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You heard that? You know, I don't have to tell you, you know the kind of men we proved to be. Why? Because you saw us. We were visible to you. We were accessible to you. And he's talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy. There we were. We rolled up our sleeves and we got a job because we didn't want you to have to buy our food or provide a place for us to stay. We came and we met with you early and we came and we met with you late. We told alongside of you. We interacted with you. We walked with you. I'm struck by the number of times in this short book, Paul says, You know you know. Verse 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be. Chapter 2, verse 1, you yourselves know. Verse 2, you know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Chapter 2, verse 5, we never came with words of flattery as you know. Verse 9, a little different but the same idea. You remember. Verse 10, you are witnesses you can testify to. Verse 11, for you know. Chapter 3, you yourselves know chapter 3 verse 4 you just as you know chapter 4 verse 2 you know it's redundant okay what's the point paul saying i'm going to remind you of this but you saw it how did you see it we were there we were in the trenches we were spending time with you we were talking to you we were investing in you you do not disciple people simply by teaching them a class Are you even having a Bible study? That's part of it. It's an important part of it, but it is only a part of it. People need to see you and see you so often that you can, without blinking, say to them later, You know. Remember that time? Remember what you saw in me? Because that's the other part of being personal. You need to be reproducible, you need to be visible, you need to be accessible. And what you do should be reproducible. You know what you do is reproduced, right? It's reproduced in your kids. It's reproduced in those that you have influence over. You share yourself. I'm going to cut this off here. But I'm going to cut it off here with a conclusion. Don't get your hopes up. We got a little bit. But we're going to take the next several weeks to look at how one goes about making disciples. A disciple maker. We know we're supposed to. How do we do it? requires visibility where people can see the way you live. It requires accessibility where they can get to you. And reproducibility or reproducible so that they can do, in a sense, what you do. They learn the truth as you model. Chapter 1, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia Paul and Silas and Timothy, imitating the Lord, allowing Christ to live in them. The Christians at Thessalonica, imitating them. How did they pray? How did they study? How did they understand this truth? How did they apply it in this context? And then how did they share the gospel? And that spread throughout the whole region where they are. Finally, I want to close just saying one of our prayer things when you're praying for somebody is to be thankful. Be thankful for them. Paul... This letter is filled with encouragement. First of all, when he got the news, we'll see later in chapter 3, he says, I live again. Once I got the news that you guys were hanging in there, I knew it was tough, and I was so concerned, and now I, have the, I see that you're doing well, that you're standing faith, that the God, that faithful, that the gospel is being spread through you, that lives are being changed and transformed, and it's like me just coming back to life, and he is so encouraged by what he sees, but he speaks encouragement to them over and over, and it's not just cheerleading. You guys know what I mean when I say it's not just cheerleading. He said, I came to you without flattery. He came to them without flattery. It wasn't just, oh, you're doing great. Just hang in there. Oh, and it wasn't just some sort of surface-level encouragement. It wasn't cheerleading. It was the kind of encouragement that says, hey, look what God is doing. You guys do know that it's hard for us to assess the transformation that God's making into our own life. We'll go along, and we'll be learning, and we'll be being transformed, and we'll see somebody we haven't seen in a while, and they'll say, you're different, or we will reflect back on what happened a year ago, two years ago, and we'll say, I would have reacted very differently back then than I do now. I'm a different person than I used to be, and Paul says, you're different than you used to be. You used to worship idols, now you tell others about Jesus Christ, and you know why? Because of what Jesus has done for you. Look at how God is working in you. Look what God is doing in you. Look what God has done. Through you. This kind of encouragement does several things and it's very important. Number one, it gives the glory where it's due. To God be the glory. Amen. But number two, it makes you thankful and not just critical about the people that you're working with. You know the reason why most people don't make disciples? Because people are messy. Does anybody ever get on your nerves? Even the people you love the most. And when we thank God for what he's done and we refresh ourselves and we encourage them and we thank God for how he's working in them, it helps us to keep a godly perspective on the people that God brings into our life. And it helps that person and gives them hope because it is hard to see how we grow in our own lives. It helps us to see what's important. So if the main task is making disciples, we need to make sure that we don't exchange it. We need to make sure we don't get on the highway going the wrong way or cut the wrong yard. We need to make sure that, that we don't get to the end of whatever journey God allows us to have here and say, this was the main thing, but we were over here doing that. We need to understand the assignment. Amen? And so let's understand what a disciple is. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about what a disciple maker does and how they do it. So are you ready? You know, y'all probably don't, but sometimes I get tired of the sound of my own voice. And I don't want any amens on that one, okay? We'll, 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 We'll skip that one. All right. But I want to be careful that church doesn't become me standing up here and talking. People come up here and singing, and then we leave, and nothing changes. You recognize that every person that encountered Christ left different, right? Every person that encountered Christ had to respond to him in one way or another. Every person that encountered Christ left left different. Now, discipleship is a process. And so I want us as a congregation to roll up our sleeves, to open our hearts, and to say we're willing. We're willing to search the Scriptures To see the things that we need to know, believe, and do in order so that when the Lord comes back on that day, we can stand before him and say, Father, we understood the assignment. And he looks at us and says, well done. Well done. Amen? Father, thank you for the assignment that you have given to us. Don't let us shirk. Don't let us be lazy. Don't let us stumble. When we stumble, stand us back up. Brush us off, forgive us, cleanse us, set our feet back on the path. Father, as a church, help us not lose sight of the assignment that you have given to us and the power that you have given us to do it and the examples that we are to follow in doing it. Just give us wisdom as we go through the next several weeks, looking how Paul interacted with the church at Thessalonica so that we may Follow his example, that we may be obedient to the clear teaching of your word, powered by your Holy Spirit, that lives are transformed and that you're glorified. You are good. You are good. In your name I pray. Amen.